Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we feature remarks made at the 2016 Tucson Makers Inspired by Women. This event was presented by AIGA Arizona and held at MOCA Tucson. Attendees had an opportunity to hear five women representing a range of creative industries. Each gave a slide presentation on what they are most passionate about. First up, we'll hear from event organizer Julie Ray, followed by MC Carrie Stratford. Then we'll hear from presenters Teresa Rosana and Denise Uyehara. Hi, my name is Julie Ray, and I am the Tucson Makers Co-Chair for AIGA Arizona, and I'd like to welcome all of you to our, thank you, <laughs> to our fifth annual Tucson Makers event. We started this event five years ago to highlight the many creative professionals that we have here in Tucson, to recognize their accomplishments and work, and also so that all of us as a community could be inspired by their passion and their projects. And I know you're gonna be inspired by the speakers tonight. I just wanna give you a brief overview of what AIGA is. We're actually the largest and oldest professional membership organization for design in the country. And we have 70 chapters, over 25,000 members. And our mission is to advance design as a professional craft, a strategic advantage and vital cultural force. And you being here tonight is supporting that, and our sponsors are supporting those efforts locally. Okay, so, inspired by women. When I think of that, I think of Carrie Stratford. Carrie is the owner of Caliber Group, a brand marketing, digital, and public relations firm based in Arizona. She started her design business just out of college, the UA School of Art, where she got her BFA in visual communications. She has 25 years of experience in design, brand strategy, and digital consultation. And she's taught design classes at the U of A School of Art for over a decade. Her work has been featured in national design publications such as Communication Arts, Graphis, Print Magazine, and numerous books in the US and abroad. She is currently producing a documentary and launching a film festival with her husband, Herb. So please join me in welcoming Carrie Stratford. Thank you, Julie. So thank you all for being here and for supporting AIGA and our women makers. I'm really excited. I know everyone's very excited to see this crowd out tonight. Uh, we uh, are, are really thrilled to be in this space. What a great space and a, on a lovely Thursday evening for us to be here um, out under the stars. Um, I hope you're all able to kind of peruse the, the space and, and uh, it's great for us in Tucson to have such a fun creative space like this uh, dedicated to contemporary art. I think we're very fortunate to have this space so thanks to MOCA for letting us be here. So this event is always one of my favorite events. Uh, when they ask me to MC it, I'm like, absolutely, uh, because I always love this event. I draw a lot of the creative inspiration for my work from a lot of different disciplines. Um, and so when they told me all of the great folks that they were gonna have um, present to you tonight, I was very excited. I, um, you know, they ha they're all coming from different disciplines and they're gonna feed your soul tonight. We had a sneak peek 
sneak preview uh, this week, and you're in for a big treat. They have some really great work, some really exciting projects. And if each and every one of you doesn't feel like you need to get back into the studio and do some work after seeing this stuff or pick up a new creative project, I will be very surprised. So, um, you know, we have five women with us tonight, and they all create very powerful work. They tackle important subjects um, head on and create interesting and arresting imagery, either objects or spaces. They come from different backgrounds, they hail from different cities, different states, uh, and their creative journeys have all been very different. But the one thing that is all the, cr the thread between all of them is their passion for their work. And I think you'll be able to tell that tonight. Uh, they also are, are great uh, and have the ability to tell uh, a, a powerful story through their work. And so I think that's what you'll, you'll learn tonight be prepared to be inspired. So let's talk the format for the evening. We have each artist, they were all given a time frame, and it's it's kind of a short time frame to, to present your work. It's kind of a, a daunting task to say, okay, how am I gonna condense all this great work that I've been doing into a short five, seven minute presentation? Uh, they can present on their current or past work, their favorite project, their creative process, or um, whatever their inspiration is. I think you're going to be amazed uh, by the ideas and everything that's going to come out to you tonight. So our first presenter is uh, Teresa Rosano. Teresa is a principal architect of Ibarra Rosano Design Architects and also an adjunct, adjunct lecturer at the University of Arizona. Her firm was founded in 1999 and two years later Architecture Magazine published she and her partner's first project and thrust them into the spotlight among an elite group of modern desert architects dubbed the Arizona School. Their work is informed by their experiences in the Southwest Desert, yet their ideas have international appeal. Teresa's work has been presented in more than 200 publications in over 20 countries and has garnered more than 60 national and international design awards, including several nominations for the prestigious Smithsonian Institute Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. So help me welcome Teresa Rosano. So this was my beginning. My mother and me in our living room, watching my father build our little adobe house in the desert north of Tucson with my then teenage cousins in a year of weekends with earth from the site. And about 10 years later, I was trying my hand at it with my, the help of my younger triplet brothers. Years later, I had the good fortune to have Judith Chafee as a design professor, the first female architect to graduate from Yale. And I am very grateful to her for both what I learned from her in studio and also that she helped pave the way for generations of women architects. So she spoke about the adobe house that she grew up in and how it influenced her. And she said, it changed all the time. I could come home from school and my mother would be moving the kitchen to another room. It was also a very modern house. It didn't look like other people's houses. It was not cutesy. And Luis's background had similarities watching his grandmother and uncles incrementally build their house in Nogales, Sonora of salvaged materials from the landfill next door. And so when Luis and I left architecture school, we had the desire to start building things. And in here are a few glimpses of our own house and no finished photographs as, because as you can imagine, it's never done. 
this experience of building served as both a finishing school and also helped land our first project. We took some snapshots of the kitchen we designed and built ourselves and submitted it to a kitchen design competition that was advertised in a magazine that we found at Home Depot. We spent a lot of weekends at Home Depot, uh, too many. But we won first place. And the prize? A new minivan. <laughs> so then, what do a couple of kids right out of college do with a minivan? Well, we sold it, we bought computers, and we started our practice. And the local article about the award brought this client who asked us to design a small, desert-appropriate home with a spirit of a loft space, like the, the space he had lived in as a med student in Baltimore. And this is Luis's original concept sketch. This was our first new, from the ground up project. But really, every project is a remodel. Because when you work with space as a medium, you need to recognize that it's already there. And we work with space the way a sculptor works with a slab of stone. Every solid is a reshaping of the void. Every physical insertion into the site is considered first as a spatial response in other words, we sculpt space with form. And we ask ourselves, how do you amplify the energy and the spirit of the space that's already there? And so this house is intended to be as raw and as rugged as the land that it sits on. Material and spatially, it's about inhabiting the desert in a way that maintains the connection to the original qualities of the site. And for us, it's about the idea of making connections between people and the land and new spaces and ancient ones. Because making space, or more accurately redefining it, is really about making experience and making connection. And so we go from our first sketch, our first project, to a more recently completed one. So this is the Levin residence. Alan and Mary Levin live in Indianapolis. Alan is a lawyer. Mary is a former fashion model. And several years ago, Mary began a scrapbook of images. And when her binder of clippings began overflowing and falling to the floor, she started putting them back in and started looking at the captions and realized that she had been recreating our portfolio for years. So she thought, I guess I found my architect. Needless to say, Mary was super engaged throughout the entire design process. Alan was usually on his Blackberry. And over the following months, several design meetings and site visits went by. Uh, Mary was pouring through every detail of the design. Alan, it was on his Blackberry. Mary asked questions, she made suggestions, she made requests, she talked about the art and the furniture. And Alan was on his Blackberry. But he did look up once to request three things. A place for a TV, an ice maker for drinks, and then we rein in Mary's wish list. <laughs> which was part of the reason he was always on his Blackberry. But we knew Alan wasn't being rude. Um, Mary's strong-willed. And also, he trusted Mary very much. And we also know that desert sites can be very overwhelming to newcomers. It's just too much to take in and understand. So we figured he was 
maybe just out of his element. But that would all change soon. So Mary and Alan couldn't visit the site um, for, first, for the first time until construction was well underway. And for logistical reasons, the first thing built on the site was this cube. And when they got there, Mary called out to Alan, Alan, come check this out. And Alan looked up from his Blackberry, which immediately went into his pocket and didn't come out. He walked toward the cube the way a turtle comes boldly out of its shell, with wide eyes and upright neck. It was almost as if he was seeing the desert for the first time. He was finally making a connection to the landscape in a way that wasn't possible for him before. So like a photographer's cropping square, the cube, and eventually the whole house, allowed Alan to see what was too overwhelming before. Architecture organizes our surroundings. It magnifies them. It distills them. And it makes them more so. So this cube is designed to slow you down, to make you see and connect, to stop and pay attention. So the house reveals itself gradually, and it's conceived as a series of frames stacked in a sequence, with each space looking through the next one to nature. So now, Alan usually keeps his Blackberry put away when he comes to town. And so returning to that little adobe house, this is the next generation of makers. This is my niece Zoe and her friend, very serious about their adobe restoration. And like Judith's childhood home and our own house, it's a process of making, discovering, and remaking place. Thank you. You are listening to remarks made at the 2016 Tucson Makers Inspired by Women, presented by AIGA Arizona and held under the stars at MOCA Tucson. So next up, we have Denise Iweahara. Denise is an interdisciplinary artist who uses the body as a central site for performance, often with the addition of imagery and found objects. Her work has been presented in London, Helsinki, Tokyo, Vancouver, and across the U.S. She is a founding member of the Sacred Naked Nature Girls and a frequent university lecturer. Denise has also received many awards for her work, including the MAP Fund, the Brody Art Fund, and support from the Asian Cultural Council, City of Los Angeles, Cultural Affairs Department, and the Arizona Commission on the Arts. She has written a book called City and Body, which documents her process and is part of the Fifth World Collective, which will be premiering Shooting Columbus at Borderlands Theater on March 30th. So help me to welcome Denise Uehara. Thank you uh, so much for inviting me this evening. It's a real honor to be here. My name's Denise Uehara. And, um, oh, look, they made a title for me. This is awesome. It feels so spectacular now. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my work and the progressions that I've made as I have gone along. I like to tell stories through my work. 
And while it's not always intentional, my work investigates individual and collective memory with the body as a central site for performance. And I'm interested in what marks us as we cross borders of identity. I'm a, a performance artist, an interdisciplinary artist, a writer, a teacher, and a mother. And I'm really happy that tonight, and very proud that my, my partner Marcel Schkop is here with our kids, Renee and Anya, 10 and six years old. <clears throat> Yay, as many of you know, as Julie can tell you, motherhood and art, it, it goes together, but it's really, really hard. But here we are, we made it. So um, I'm a fourth generation Japanese American and Okinawan American. And when I began creating work, back in the early 90s, way back then, not that many Asian Americans were going into performance art. I mean, you gotta be kidding, you could be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, a scientist. Um, and so it wasn't really popular for um, my community, but um, I, I pursued it anyway. And I was pursuing uh, working um, nights in an ensemble, in an avant-garde ensemble in Los Angeles, and I was working a straight job. When I got the word that my grandmother had committed suicide by fire, this is a very intense moment in our family history. Um, it was a, a very difficult time for my family, but and for me, I felt that I needed to create something from it. And that's when I learned my first lesson about art, that art is something that speaks through us. As artists, we just kind of need to listen and get out of the way and let it speak through us. So I created Charcoal, which is this piece, um, a very young me. I'm sitting on a chair, I'm just rubbing charcoal on my hands and I'm rubbing it on a white canvas behind me. It's just a, a paper that I got at an art store. And when I stand up and I, I'm telling the story of her last moments, and when I get up and I walk away, there is a negative space, a halo. <clears throat> and it just taught me something about um, what we can see and what we can uh, convey without even talking. I then go on to embody her and, and speak uh, as a, the way that she spoke to me when she came to me in a dream and told me she had lived a wonderful life and she wanted to go to the spiritual world. Uh, then I created another piece, completely different, Hello Sex Kitty, Mad Asian Bitch on Wheels. It was a show about love and respect among the genders, about LGBT, I came out as queer and bisexual during that time. And um, I was also mistaken at the time as the world's first Asian lesbian stand-up comedian which I am not, I am not a comedian, but I had to put it in the show and parody it because it was just so funny. Um, and the show just kind of took on a life of its own and it kept, I kept touring and touring and touring. It was a show that would not die. So I realized, wow, I could tour the circuit. I could be doing it right now, you know, 20 years later. And I realized I needed to kind of stop and think about what I needed to do as an artist to kind of grow as an artist. So I went on and created other pieces, Maps of City and Body, um, and work that um, worked with light projection. Light as a source, uh, as representing memory, projected onto both flat and uneven surfaces. The way that memory is malleable, the way that we can change memory as we move forward, um, and how that shapes who we are today and our relationship with the past. So one of the stories that I tell is um, my childhood memory of um, my neighbors across the street. Uh, one was a Holocaust survivor, and I remember seeing these blue marks, numbers, on her arm. And while I'm telling the story, I'm drawing marks along my arms with a pen. 
And then um, I also talk about her adopted Chicana daughter and their tension in their relationship about what their identity was and who they were. And then later, the, the mother develops Alzheimer's disease. So what does that mean for our memory if we cannot remember who we are? What does that mean about um, our relationship with our daughter that we do not remember? I had the opportunity to perform abroad, and I had this moment when I was on stage speaking in English to a non-speaking English audience in Tokyo, and I realized how self-referential we were in the United States. I was talking in English to it, you know, like, why should I expect that they speak English? So it really made me think about my own work and about how I could really try to use more movement um, and really look at the language of the body as opposed to just doing, I was relegating myself to gesture, to support monologue, and I was starting to feel like Spalding Gray, and I'm not very good at being Spalding Gray, so I realized I needed to kind of move on from that and, and go back to school and learn about the language of the body. I started creating work that was doing clay animation projected on the body, looking at civil liberties and different issues that were going on um, in post 9-11, and the parallels between Japanese-American internment and those perceived now as the enemy in a post 9-11 world, um, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. Um, another piece that I created later, which again was kind of branching out from my own personal identity, was looking at the US occupation in Okinawa. So this is the Senkotsu Mistranslation Project. When I was in Okinawa doing field work and met my relatives there, I realized how I was mistranslating everything that I was in, in seeing. I created a performance installation with an ensemble. It was an audience participatory piece with the audience engaging in a series of bone and egg games where they found eggs and found bones and washed the bones in the egg shells and washed them in the lights of projection. It's kind of based on a burial ritual called Senkotsu in Okinawa pre-World War II in which the bodies of the deceased were left in open areas to dehydrate and then certain members of the clan, often women, were asked to wash the bones and put them in above ground tombs called haka, which is represented here by a, a different kind of net. But haka are actually above ground cement tombs in Okinawa. And the bones then are eventually intermingled together so that all of the ancestors can live together. So the project that I did allowed people to kind of experience um, bones. These are some of the bones that are also in the, um, the lobby over here that you can arrange in the shape of a childhood memory in the shape of the heart of an Iraqi, various things. Um, anyway, at the end there is a mistranslation machine. It's like a giant horn machine that you put the bone in front of the machine and you speak your most important message to that bone and the machine will automatically mistranslate what you say, which is mistranslating your most well-meant intentions, which is kind of how I felt about the international experience of like, um, Part of international collaboration, I think, is just learning about each other more than about anything that we can fix. Uh, Dreams and Silhouettes was a work that we premiered at the Global Justice Center a few years ago. It's a collaboration with Jason Aragon from Pan Left Productions and Adam Kupaturan and many artists, uh, Wes Cray and Christine Cardenas and others in Yvonne Montoya in um, Los Angeles, in, in Tucson, sorry. 
Um, it was inspired by interviews with undocumented women in the South Tucson area, looking at the militarization that they face. Uh, they were often afraid to leave their homes at night, but they did come out for this performance. The Global Justice Center was a really progressive space that created a safe space for a very diverse audience to come out and see the work. Um, and uh, the artists are painting live on the back wall as we're um, performing in the front. And so by the end, there's uh, the lights go down and there's lights come up and you can just see a, a painting that they made of the different people that are kind of like disappeared. So that's here. Um, we had a cage uh, with filled with documents, uh, identification materials on it. We also had footage from Operation Streamline, which um, made by a wonderful visual artist here in Tucson who went and went to the courthouse and actually drew, made court, his own court pictures of what he witnessed of Operation Streamline. Um, that's me as the Border Patrol agent in the background with a mask. Last project, Shooting Columbus. It's going to premiere next March. Um, this is a project with the Fifth World Collective. Um, it's based on um, one of our uh, artists in the group, Ryan Pinto, who's Hopi, said that in the Hopi tradition, the fifth world is the next world that will happen after we have um, kind of come to an end here. So this is kind of like a space of imagination that we're working on. Um, the premise of this piece is if indigenous scientists built a time machine and went back to 1492 to shoot Columbus, how would life today be different? So it's a big learning curve for me. Um, I'm not Native American. I'm indigenous on my Okinawan side of the family, but indigenous from somewhere else. So we're a group that's looking at these questions. It's a walkthrough performance installation um, that will um, really ask those questions. We live on a Tohono Adam land, which is this land here. What does that mean for all of us that are basically settlers here in this country, in this land? Um, so as I continue to create work, I try to always ask those questions about identity and memory and how that shapes who we are now and how that can create possibilities and a space for imagination for the future. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. Today's speakers included event organizer Julie Ray, followed by MC Carrie Stratford. We then heard from presenters Teresa Rosano and Denise Uyehara. These remarks were made at the 2016 Tucson Makers, Inspired by Women. This event was presented by AIGA Arizona and held at MOCA Tucson. Attendees had an opportunity to hear from five women representing a range of creative industries. This was part one of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Audio to most episodes of 30 Minutes is available on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.